Welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's a Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you mates missed the show at any time, of course, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Matt Shepard, who has just completed his Master's in Law, the LLM, under the supervision of Dr. Beta Amani. Welcome to Grad Chat, Matt. Thank you, Quiet. Now, it's actually quite funny because Matt is very used to being in the recording studio, although I think you did yours from home. Because Matt used to have a show himself a couple of years ago now called Waffles, wasn't it, on Saturday yes. morning yeah, with, I, with I, your I wife? I had a show here at the radio station. Uh, I also, before starting the Masters in Law, I actually worked at the law school and hosted a podcast for them That's on the right. law for some time. That's right. Yeah. So pretty adapted at this. Um, so I didn't have to do much explaining of how the whole system works for Matt, which is always very, very helpful. So you did mention, of course, that you worked in the Faculty of Law, but now, of course, you're in the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. That's correct. How is it working full-time and doing your Master's at the same time? It was great. When I started at the law school, I knew nothing about the law, like nothing. Mm. I, I literally, they hired me because I had a background. I, I work in marketing and communications, and they hired me because I had a background in pharmaceutical marketing, which doesn't seem to have a lot to do with the law, but it really is all about how do you explain incredibly complex things to various groups of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the attribute they liked about me, but I didn't know much about the law itself. But after I'd spent a few years at the law school, they launched a program called the Undergraduate Certificate in Law. Right. And that is exactly what it sounds like. It's a series of courses and you can take them and they're designed for undergraduates. So this is for people that are not yet in law school to give you a baseline knowledge of the law in a number of different areas. So I took their introduction to Canadian law, Aboriginal law, IP law and constitutional law. And I've been learning through osmosis too, obviously, yeah. but I was hooked. This stuff's great. <laughs> so I did all of that. And then I really did ask myself like, I find this really, really interesting. And a lot of it, especially in the intellectual property course, mm -hmm. obviously intersects with what I do in marketing and communications. So I, I says to myself, I says, I would really like to get more into the academic side of this. Right. And start looking more profoundly at legal issues in intellectual property and privacy that overlap in the marketing and communication space. So I sort of, with that intent, applied to the master's program and luckily got in. And which is great, but how did you find the workload of doing both? I mean, obviously you've got a passion for it, otherwise you wouldn't have gone back to right. it. But how did you fit that in? Because I know your roles, both when you're at law and now in engineering, faculty of engineering, 
it's a heavy workload just for your day job. Yes. And there's two flavors of masters. There's full-time and part-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, full-time traditionally takes a year of basically full-time work. I didn't do that. I did part-time. So this was essentially a course, a term. The, the type of masters I right. took was five courses and what they call a mini thesis. Right. So my five courses were spread out over six terms. Uh, there's a gap because there was no course I, I wanted to take in one of those terms. So it took me three years to do and kind of working on the mini thesis almost concurrent with the courses for the last year and a half. Oh, that's good. So it was a three-year project at the end of the day. It was a lot, but one course per term wound up being manageable. Right, Stretching right. me, but, but, but manageable at the end of the day. Less overlap than you'd think, though. Like, I wasn't in the course and then chatting with the professor in the hallway about the course afterwards because it's just not structured that way right and plus all of this a lot of this overlap with COVID so the bulk of my studies were done remotely anyway so it wasn't like I was in the building with anyone right for the, for the vast majority of the time that's that's a bit of a shame actually and I know this is the, the same for anyone who is studying in the last two years through COVID that you know yours was a short program anyway yeah. whether it's full-time or part-time but you didn't have the op- really have the opportunity to meet other people in your cohort to discuss your research and listen to about theirs as, as well at the same time. It's true. Uh, in the master's program, what happens with the law school is they have only very few courses that are just for grad students. The rest mm-hmm. of the courses you're taking are combined with senior level courses for the, the Juris Doctor students, okay. the kind of quote-unquote regular law students. Mm-hmm. So... There was a bit of an opportunity lost there, but I found that the faculty members were very supportive. There's a very good graduate community at the law school. Yep. Uh, it's very easy to sort of find other grad students to, to chat with. The faculty, even outside of my supervisor, were fairly supportive. The, the law students weren't as much in the same space in terms of wanting to just kind of chat about research and ideas. So you can see that the band is picking up and getting more exciting <laughs> as they talk about collaborating and discussing. So, I don't feel like I lost that many opportunities, but I can definitely see how in a different scenario it would have mm-hmm. been a richer experience. I, I guess what helps for you, that you're, you're in the university environment anyway, so you do have opportunities. I hope in your job to sort of meet students along the way, and particularly at this stage right now in engineering. Yes. So. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like almost compelled to say this. If you work full-time at an educational institution in Canada and you are not taking courses at some level, you are a fool. It is it's effectively true. free. And you can do all kinds of amazing studies. doesn't even have to be at the institution you're working at. It's mm-hmm. like a whole network and relationship. It is such a preposterous perk of the job that so few people take advantage of. Well, for someone like me... I love learning, yeah. and which is why I love doing this show, because I learn so much from our students. But when it comes to actually doing courses, I get what they call test anxiety. So if there's a <laughs> test in it, count me out. Or if there's a, a project which you have to write more than one page, count me out. 
<laughs> so unfortunately, I haven't been one of those people who have taken advantage of this I, opportunity. I, we'll talk offline. I will strongly urge you to reconsider. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's fantastic. So I guess we should actually get on to yep. what we came here for, was actually to talk about the research that you have just done. So you talked about intellectual property and, and learning about that, and I know there's been other students in, in the law program who have looked at intellectual property, like uh, Toby Moody, yep. when he did his on looking at more or less like indigenous intellectual property with, yes. with some of those things and how, um, I remember in that one it was to do with plants and what have you, of the knowledge they have of what this plant can do, then the Western society picked it up and made a fortune, but the, right. the traditional people didn't get anything from it. So that was his area. But yours is really, and another side of that is, and your research topic is, the digital tightrope, which is very true for today with all the new technology. And it, you say it's examining the complex regulatory landscape for visual asset management in Canadian higher education. So you've really managed to put everything you do and the education system right. into one project, which is really handy for all of us to know anyway. <laughs> and speaking, speaking of test anxiety, this is evidence of someone who isn't sure he knows how to write a legal paper, taking a swing <laughs> at what he thinks is a good legal paper title. But really, it's if, if I were writing this in my own words, it would have been more along the lines of pictures and privacy, what's up with that? Right. Is really kind of the core of it. So it's, this isn't... So my mini thesis wasn't in the intellectual property space per se, but it's kind of adjacent to it. Right. Uh, but it's more concerned with, with privacy and individual rights to privacy and how we have a legislative structure in Canada that is incredibly complex mm -hmm. when it comes to understanding what people's rights are and where those rights reside. And tightrope, because on the other side we have a rapidly and massively growing presence of higher education institutions in the digital space, which is almost entirely driven by images. Right. So you've got, on the one hand, this almost 20, 20-odd-year-old 20 system for privacy rights, and Ottawa is planning an update uh, that doesn't substantially change a lot of what I'm talking about here, but they are planning to update some things about privacy law. But at the moment, pretty much all privacy legislation in Canada is about 20 years old. And 20 years old does not sound like it's that old. Mm -hmm. Like 20 years ago is not that long ago, especially if you're talking about the law, where you know there's some laws that date back hundreds of years that are still in force. But if you think about the internet and social media and presence in 2002 versus today, it's almost, when I was researching for this paper, I had to go back in time and try to find archived websites of the university's website from 2002 and talk to the archives people and ask what were we doing online and what do we have in print and et cetera. There was no Facebook, there was no Instagram, there was no YouTube, there was no TikTok, uh, there was no Reddit. The, the, everything we think of today is kind of the social media landscape didn't exist yet in 2001 or 2002, the amount of processing power and storage it took just to send an image was incomprehensibly yeah. large yeah. to what we have today where we've got thousands of images streaming across our phone all the time. So where we're at now is we've got a legislative structure that was set up at a time when pretty much print was the only way you could practically share a picture. And it's still being applied today to 
the structure where the reality of marketing and communications in higher education means that I couldn't even fathom a guess. Queens as a whole, all of our websites, all our social media channels, if you work in student clubs and organizations that are also putting images out, we're probably putting thousands of pictures out into the mm -hmm. world every day. And trying to balance that with a fairly antiquated system of law makes for a pretty untenable situation where it's hard for the people who are managing the images in the higher education institution side to live up to the letter of the law. Right. And the law is not written really in a way that strongly protects the rights of the people whose pictures are being taken. So on that point, and a little bit of a side here, not talking about legalities per se, because we do get lots of, we get videos taken and photographs and we get people to sign a waiver to yep. say that we can use it for Queen's related marketing and promotion. But how long, my, my issue has been, how long could, do we keep that permission for? Right. Um, <laughs> and because if you, you're right, you know, if someone from 2002 to now, things have changed a lot. So in the, before it was really just a picture on a poster Whereas now, it could go out on social media, it can go on the website, and it can go all over the place. Right. So when you, and I guess it does come back to legalities, you know, sh should there be some sort of time frame of when we get permissions, how long they last? And so, because you're talking about data, visual asset management, right? how long do we keep them in the storage? Well, and there isn't. There isn't a legislative, there is no legislative time period that consent is valid for. Uh, that just doesn't exist anywhere in written legislation in Canada. So it's almost up on the person who's asking for the consent to frame the time period themselves. And this is where we get into that interesting idea of ethically, I think it would be better if I, the person who's gathering and using an image, could be as explicit as possible with people what I intend to use the, the mm -hmm. picture for. So if I were to take a picture of my backup band practicing in the studio next door, <laughs> I'd love to say to them, hey folks, I'm taking a picture of you, I'm going to use it this afternoon in a social media post about the radio station, and that's the only time I'm going to use it. But the practicality of yeah, what I that. do is, I might be looking for something for a brochure next week about the great things you can do at the radio station on the Queen's campus because I think that'll be a real hook to help recruit students. Mm -hmm. I got this great picture of a band playing live. In the, I would love to use this picture, but now I've sort of frozen myself out right? because I've kind of over-explained what I want to use it for. So there's an ethical drive to be as considerate and thoughtful and tight as possible mm -hmm. in how you frame permissions. But there's a practical drive to be the exact opposite. If I just say, and this is under law, it's okay for me just to give notice verbally, I could just say, hey, I'm gonna take some pictures, I'm gonna use them for marketing at Queens. Is that cool? And if no one objects or leaves the room, that's pretty much all I need to do. Right, so you don't even need, a, in, in law, a signature from them on a piece of paper. No, that's best practice, right? A, a consent form would be best practice, absolutely, mm -hmm. but technically in the letter of the law. It's not absolutely required. If you look at either the, the federal legislation or the various provincial legislations that govern this. And we can talk a bit more about that tapestry. But in essence, again, looking at what I do in higher ed, if I take a picture of five students today that are in the graduating class of 2026, 
great. I might use them on a brochure today. I might use them on the website next week. I might use them on social media next year. Then you hit this sort of gap mm-hmm. where suddenly their, their hair looks a little weird and their clothes are out of style. Right. So you don't use them for a long time. But then it's the year 2036, and it's their 10th year anniversary, and they're coming back to campus. Right. Well, now maybe I want to drag some of these pictures up and share them with the class or put them up in social media. Say, look at these crazy kids coming back for their 10th year anniversary. Then it's their 25th. Then it's their 50th. So there's no incentive for me to force myself into a position. To delete those I'm, pictures. Where I'm limiting myself with mm-hmm. this. My imperative as a good person is to try to be as respectful as possible to people's privacy. But my imperative as an employee of the institution is to try to give myself as much utility as possible. Right. With the assets I'm putting into creating these images, I, I need to make sure for the institution that I'm getting the most value I can mm-hmm. out of the work and money I'm putting into this. So is this where the issue, some of the issues come in then? Because we're talking about what do you mean by privacy then? Right. In, in um, your work. Privacy is, it sounds obvious to the lay person. It sounds obvious to me. What's privacy? Well, don't barge into the bathroom when I'm doing stuff. That's privacy. But there is a lot of nuance to the idea of privacy, and especially where I'm interested in in looking at this, it's the idea of privacy in public. Right. And this gets back to, again, higher ed marketing and communications and the kind of images we use now. We've moved away, largely, almost as an entire culture of higher ed marketing, from posed pictures. Yes. There just aren't that many. You don't see that many photos anymore where people are, it looks like you've, they look like a wedding photo where people are all standing in a row, smiling, looking right at the camera. Everything you see now is casual. Mm-hmm. It's, even if there's some posing involved, there's still a level of ambiance to it where it's looking like you're trying to capture people in their real environment. Right. And that means frequently being in a real environment. And that means capturing people who might be out of scope of being the people who are supposed to be featured in your photo. Right. So that's where you get into a whole interesting lineage and question about privacy in public. Because the natural intuitive thing is to think people don't have privacy in public. If I choose to go for a walk in the park, I'm choosing to be in public, and if someone picks, uh, takes a picture of me in the park, that's fair game. And they can do whatever they want with the picture because here I am. I'm in public. I have no privacy rights. But that's not how it plays out in the law. No. No. And there, there's a number of cases in Canada. Aubrey versus Edition, vice versa, is kind of the most famous one. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court where a photographer in Montreal took a picture of a woman sitting on some steps in public without her permission and later put it on a magazine cover. And this went through Quebec's uh, civil rights process and eventually got up to the Supreme Court where they affirmed, no, just because a person's in public doesn't mean you have the right to their image to do whatever you want with it. There's a lot of other precedent here. There's a lot of other court cases. But that essential guideline has basically held true since then. Just because someone is out and about doesn't mean you can use their image in any way you want. And there's there's a lot of philosophy that kind of intersects with law here where women like Helen Nissenbaum well all sorts of people including a woman named Helen Nissenbaum (laughs) are talking about something called contextual integrity so the you in front of me right now you chose to wear these clothes today for a reason yeah because you knew you'd be in certain places and people would see you but if you were going to the opera you might dress a certain way 
or if you're at home enjoying a piece of toast, you might dress a different way. Or if you're into various subcultures or various hobbies, if you're going to the Renaissance Fair, you might dress a different way. And even if you're in public in most of these scenarios, if I take a picture of you at the Renaissance Fair and display it to people in an entirely different context, I am violating your privacy right. because I am removing your right to control your image in the context in you intend to be in. So how does all this play out then at a university? Because because you're talking about you know how it works in Canadian higher education. Because we're always taking lots of photos. And actually, right now, we're wanting to take even more because we've had two-year hiatus right. because of COVID. And so we're all wanting to take new images and things. So how does this private versus public versus being in an institution where there's a, a general consensus that you could be in a picture and there are certain areas where they will get permission and others you just, like you said, could be on you could be on the peripheral. Yep. And you ha they haven't asked you, but they've asked the person they're honing in on. Right. So how does this work in the university context? So it, it plays out practically as essentially what are the consent management practices we need to be aware of depending on where you are and the legislation that applies to you. And is that federal or does each province do something different? A little bit of everything. Okay, of course. So there's this <laughs> Fuzzy line. <laughs> well, the, the simplest way is, generally speaking, universities are at least partially publicly funded bodies. Right. So they tend to fall under privacy acts that are managed at the provincial level. So in Ontario, it's FIPA. Okay, uh, yes. Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. There's a, basically every province has FIPA-type legislation right. that governs higher education institutions and other public institutions in those provinces. In the territories, though, uh, territorial higher education is, I can't remember the exact term, but it's, it's federally run and falls under a piece of federal legislation called PIPIDA. And that also applies to private business. So okay. I'm making a bit of a hash of this, but PIPIDA also applies to for-profit private businesses that operate on campuses. Oh. So to give you a couple of use cases from Queens, everything I do is governed by FIPA right. pretty clearly. I am doing it as part of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science, which is part of the university proper. It's one of its faculties. But there may be a dentist who is leasing space on the campus and is operating his clinic, he would be governed by PIPIDA. Because okay. even though he's on campus, he's still a private he's institution. Still private. And he's still working as a for-profit entity. Right. So it's it's a tapestry of things that interweave, and sometimes the line gets a little fuzzy. To another example that comes from some government Ontario government guidance documents is, or maybe PIPIDA guidance documents, is if if the a hospital would be under FIPA. But if the hospital has a service that leases televisions to people in rooms and takes money from the people to lease the television then in the rooms, the end of the other one. that specific area of business would be governed by Pivota. Oh, God. Yeah. So you've got to be aware of a number of things. But really, we, what you were asking about, how does this affect practically marketing communications on campus, is being aware of and practicing best practices, ideally, or minimally acceptable practices, generally for photo capture and video capture. Right. So to give you an, an example, uh, if I want to take photos of students at a street fair, there's gonna be a street fair during orientation. There will be 
thousands of students there yeah. and I want to take pictures. I can't get a consent form for every student. No. They're coming and going. It's an open street. There's not even like one entrance and one exit. There'd be no feasible way. So this is a case where you have to default to posted notice. So you can put signs up at right. every place you think of, every place where it's kind of logical to conceive that people might be entering the space. You'd put up a posted notice which says, you know, if you get standard language be. for the institution, but these images may be used for Queen's University marketing and communications purposes. Please be aware if you enter this space, your image may be captured and used. That sort of language. Right. Or you can do that a different way. You could do it uh, within a sign-up process. So you could, for instance, have every student who's signing up for orientation. There's an explicit clause somewhere yes. in there before they sign their name and say, yes, I want to participate in orientation activities. There's a clause in there that says, during orientation activities, your images may be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And they still have an option to reviews. They don't have to participate in the event. So by law, this is pretty much all you need to do. You need to tell them that you intend to capture images. You need to tell them under what authority you're capturing the images. You need to tell them what the images are being used for. But there's no definition in law about how tight that definition needs to be. So mm. you can just say for marketing and communications purposes, and there's nothing in the law saying you can't be that broad. And finally, you have to give them, there has to be an opportunity for them to say no. Interesting again, because looking at our photo video waiver that we have, uh, one asks, you know, can we take your, your image? But another question is also, can we use your name? Right. Which becomes really tricky. If you're the photographer and things, of which ones you have to get the name from and which you don't kind of thing, or, or making sure you know exactly who that person is and then marking on the image, don't use name. Um, and I've had some too where I've asked for permission to use photographs and I've asked, I need it, I want to use it in two different areas, for instance. One on the website is a celebratory type thing and another one to put on a permanent collage on a wall. And they'll come back and say, yes to the collage, no for, no for going on the web. Okay. Totally get it. Yep. But then again, the person who's been taking the pictures, we have to make sure each individual image has then been marked to say, only for this. Yeah. Uh, which creates, when we talk about asset management, it, maybe I'm talking in a different way, but again, that makes things really tricky, right? No, you're absolutely right. I would say that you are doing things the most correct way in terms of an ethical approach that's very respectful of the rights of the person you photographed. You are going above and beyond in a legal sense. You could have just framed, we want to take your picture and use it for marketing purposes, and, and say nothing that. else, do whatever mm -hmm. you want with it. Um, and I mean, the other, the other aspect of this, getting back to this idea of the tightrope, is there is not a lot at the end of the day that really protects the person whose image is taken. Mm -hmm. There is, there's, so in, in law, there's basically two areas of redress. One is legislation. So you go to basically the government and you say this person is doing something wrong, make them stop. And the government says, I agree, you there, stop this. And the other is tort, where you sue somebody. Right. So let's, let's take your hypothetical. The student sees their picture on a permanent banner, doesn't want it there, and they think it's the worst thing in the world. Well, under the law, they could sue you. Mm -hmm. uh, they could say, I'm going to sue you. But then they have to find a ground to sue you under. 
And that's tricky in and of itself because right. there's not really a great tort that matches up exactly to you took my picture and you're using it and I don't like it. There's a tort called appropriation of personality, but it's with with the exception of some small use cases, including a case called Vanderveen, which was in a small claims court in Ontario a while back. But broadly speaking, appropriation of personality really relies on you having a, a, a popular personality to appropriate. Right. So if you were Wayne Gretzky, pretty easy to do something with appropriation of personality. But for Colette or Matt, there's not really not. much there. No. You're, you're, you're not appropriate. If you put my image on something, you're not appropriating that much, really. <laughs> At the end of the day, you're not really cashing in on like a, my, my super fame or anything. So it's hard to find a tort. Mm -hmm. And even when tort cases have been proven, which was the case in Aubrey and the case in Vanderveen, the awards are usually in the hundreds of dollars. So this is not a crippling blow not to crippling. the institution financially, and it's not a massive windfall that's going to motivate people to pursue that. On the legislative end, if you go to the Ontario web website about FIPA, the uh, Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, literally the first step of a complaint process to the Privacy Commissioner is try to work it out with the organization at the other side. Right. So you can't even file a complaint until Unless you, you come to the institution and give it a shot. And I think if a student came to you and said, hey, you put my image on this big banner and I don't really like it, you're either a decent human being and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, that was a little crappy of me. I think I'll change the banner and you'll change the banner. Or if you wanted to take it to the mat because you're really mean for some reason, well, you've got their consent. Got consent. They gave you consent. Mm -hmm. You said what the purpose was. You gave them all the outs. They didn't use it. So at the end of the day... The worst that the government would do is say, yeah, take it down and make a new banner, please. Right. And then you do the same thing you would have done initially anyway. And the other other aspect of this is what we haven't talked about and what really seems to me the most practical outcome of people with issues in the public sphere is public shaming, basically. Right. Uh, the, the worst case scenario here isn't, in fact, a legal consequence for the university. It's this student going on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook and saying, look at these monsters appropriating my image without permission. How dare they? Right. And then other people are like, yes, Queens is the worst. And now you've got a public relations issue. Right. So there is a motivation on the campus's end to be good citizens, both to be good citizens and also just for straight impact management. Impact. Mm -hmm. to, it to comes make down sure to that reputation, isn't it? It does. Dam damaging reputation. But... When you get right down to the, the tangible aspects of the law, there just isn't that much to punish bad actors in this particular space of taking a picture, getting some form of consent, and then using it in a way that somebody doesn't like. There's not any precedent in law of that really going poorly for the organization that's using the image. Right. The cases I've mentioned, Aubrey and Vanderveen, these were cases where permission wasn't sought at all. Nobody asked, nobody waved, nobody said hello. It was just take a photo and use it without ever speaking to the person, never posting a sign, never putting a, a clause in a contract. Like, right. So there is nothing in law that substantially prevents us as marketing and communications people at a university from taking a pretty liberal license with the images we gather, mm. except we have, and especially at an educational institution, we do have an ethical obligation to try to do our utmost to protect the people who are here, yeah. which includes protecting their privacy rights. 
going to add one more thing, perhaps, when you're talking about pictures, because we can take some fabulous pictures in a research lab and, and things like that. Yep. And some we automatically give the flick because for some reason they forgot to put the safety goggles on. So <laughs> that's an, an obvious one we don't want to be showcasing. But then there's, there comes the time when I, I've noticed you know, our students move on. Mm-hmm perhaps go and do a postdoc or become faculty members and things and the work that they were originally working on here is not relevant to them anymore right and so you know I think this comes down to FIP when I talk about FIP uh, or the time length you know how long do we keep it because if the person is not working in that industry or that area anymore should we be keeping a picture of them working in that area or can we just say well it's not about the person itself it's about the, the research um, so you know that that's another area I think which is a bit dicey. But I think that's an ethical area. True. I think that's that's a question, and I think it's a, I think it's a good question and a question that's worth examining. But when it comes to the law, if if you got a picture of them researching pizza and they gave you full permission mm-hmm. to use the pizza research photo, and they didn't put any limitations on it when they gave you that permission, then they move on to work on uh, baguettes, and they say, hey, I'm not in pizza anymore. You can't use that picture. Legally, you can. Yeah. Ethically, maybe you shouldn't. Shouldn't. Yeah. Okay. So, how would you like? You know, I know you're looking at this tightrope. Would how would how can you? How would you see things changing if they could change? Or is it one of those things where, for an academic institution, we don't want it to change because we have a bit more leeway? I I am not a strong enough legal scholar to envision a, a workable solution that kind of reconciles all of the tensions mm-hmm. here. I mean, there's two broad approaches, which is we need to do more to protect people's privacy, mm-hmm. which means more law and making the law more stringent, um, which would make things immeasurably more difficult right. for people like us to do our jobs. But maybe that's okay. Maybe that's an acceptable cost mm-hmm. to make sure people's privacy is better better protected. The other vector here is just simplify the law, um, which is why do we have all of the... Why are we not harmonized province to province, first of all, with our privacy legislation? Yeah. a really low-hanging question. Why does Ontario and Manitoba and Alberta and British Columbia and Nova Scotia, why do we all have different pieces of public sector privacy mm-hmm. legislation that are all like slightly different in every <laughs> respect, which makes it really, really hard? And we haven't even talked really about collaboration, but you right. take a photo of a grad student here, but you're part of an international or a national grad recruitment strategy where you're sharing photos with institutions in BC and Nova Scotia and Nunavut to help get grad students to Canada. Well, the photo you took in Ontario, that's Ontario privacy law, but British Columbia has got a different set of privacy laws. Right. So what you can do with that picture here may not be the same as what you can do with that picture there. Oh, so it's not the regulation of the actual province where the picture was taken. I think it's both. Like, mm-hmm. I think where the picture is taken is important in some aspects of the law, but then it's where the picture resides mm-hmm. is important for other aspects of the law because there's all these laws about retention and storage. Right. So right. if you take a digital photo of someone in Ontario and you send it for a collaborative project for someone in BC, the rules of capture, did you get the appropriate permission to take the picture 
and initially share the picture out of province apply to you, but then there's also right. management questions that reside with the asset itself, which is now somewhere else in BC, but may not even be in BC. It might be in the cloud, mm-hmm. which means it could digitally, the file could still be in Ontario and someone's accessing it from BC, but then they're making a copy on their local computer when they view it. It's a whole thing. Which kind of gets back to the simplify the law part. Right. There is one thing that cuts through all of this very cleanly, which is there are already several exemptions to privacy legislation. Uh, A lot of them have to do with things like law enforcement. Law enforcement has certain powers to, you know, share and distribute photos that contain personal information Mm -hmm. for the purposes of law enforcement. Just as one example, you could make an exception for marketing communications. And there are exceptions, I should say, in PIPIDA for images used for journalistic purposes. Okay. So there's already a journalism exception in the law for some of this. So you could just say images gathered for marketing communications purposes, privacy does not apply to them, it's all tort. And if you have an issue, you have to take it, you have to find a tort like appropriation of personality and sue people. That's basically your recourse. Which most people won't do because they couldn't afford it. Yeah, well, that's access to justice is another <laughs> is another huge complicating issue here. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. So there's yeah. there's kind of two two vectors. One is we need more law to protect the people whose privacy is being questionably exploited, and the other vector is we need to simplify the simplify law it. to make the jobs of everyone who works in this space much much easier. The theory being, if they have less to worry about in terms of ticking legal boxes, they have more capacity to think about the ethics and being better ethical actors and might actually act more appropriately as opposed to constantly looking for kind of minimal standards and loopholes because the law is so difficult to follow in the first place. Right. The ethics is a good good question because I know even in research there's ethics that they have to pass and things depending on what they're doing. Matt, we're going to have to call it quits. Oh, that's okay. (laughs) Because we've got lots of information here. And it's a topic that's really quite interesting, as you you said. But um, unfortunately, we are going to have to stop. But maybe when you think about it even more after... After all this, after even in you know six months' times after you've had time to reflect on what you've just finished, yeah, and with the way things are changing right now, it's in on campus. It'd be interesting to see if you have the same thoughts and things. Yeah, uh, law is amazing. I, I think really it gets, it, you th- it gets you thinking. Yes, uh, the certificate in law is available online, so anyone who's listening to this can take these courses. I love it. I don't even work for the law faculty anymore. anymore. I have no reason to promote it. It's <laughs> genuinely worry. excellent. I'm constantly uh, promoting all sorts of things yeah, that we no, do on campus. It is a genuinely great program. So I think if anyone out there has any curiosity about the law, mm-hmm. the, Queen, the Queen's Law Certificate in Law program is a great way to learn a whole lot real fast. That's good. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's thank been you. great to have a colleague on the show with me <laughs> in a different capacity this time. So that, that's great. So that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. And don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.